Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. In 1974, there were a bunch of great movies. One of the most underrated movies of that year starred one James Kahn. It was called The Gambler. Paul Sorvino was in that movie. Lauren Hutton, if you recall, was in that movie. The reason I bring it up is because James Kahn played the aforementioned gambler. His name was Axel. And he made a series of bets, and he was out in Las Vegas, and he was listening to these games. And at halftime, he was up big on all of his bets. He subsequently left thinking that he was going to be a winner, only to find out that all his teams lost. The point is, and one of the lines from the movie, Dan Nathan, is they don't pay you at halftime, Axel. And here we are at halftime in the market. And although a lot of the things that we've been talking about are playing out, they don't pay you at halftime. So there's a lot of runway left in this year. But I think first and foremost... I think it would be interesting to go back and sort of look at some of the things that have happened over the last six months. Well, it's interesting, right? So if you were a bear coming in this year and you look at the S&P 500 limping into the close of this quarter down, what, 20 or so percent, we're going to close in a technical definition of a bear market. The NASDAQ is down about 30 percent. There's no victory laps right now. When you think about just all of the cross currents in the economy and you think about so many parts of the stock market that have been correcting for over a year, many since their highs in Q1 of 2021, the broad market, the major indices don't really reflect the sort of devastation that's gone on in large parts of the market. So in some ways, you're going to have to wait until the fourth quarter to get paid if you're the gambler playing for an all-out destructive period as it relates to equities. And I know that Liz Young gave us this stat guy earlier in the day when we were speaking to her that she said the average decline in a recession for the stock market is like 30% or so, and we're very likely to be in a recession. And so down 21%. Talk to me when the S&P has round-tripped all the way back to its pre-pandemic highs from February 2020, which is just below 3,400, which would be a 30% peak to trough decline. Then you can start talking about how we bottom. Danny, it was this time last year you'd started to bring up the term that everybody's heard of, but very few people were talking about the time stagflation. And so many things that you were talking about last summer have absolutely come to fruition. And Dan said, we're not here to take victory laps. No, we're not. But we are here to do is sort of point out what's going on 
and what we think is going to go on moving forward. So your calls have been prescient in a word, all playing out right before our very eyes. My question now is, how does the rest of the year sort of play itself out? Because right now, there are as many cross currents in the market as I've seen in quite some time. Yeah, I would just add to the first half pain was not just about the stock market, it's about the bond market. And so there's really nowhere to hide as the cost of everything was getting more expensive at the same time. So you started out with Movie the Gambler, which is near and dear to my heart. I was watching Powell speak yesterday, or actually, that's not true, I didn't watch it speak. I heard about him speaking, and then I watched the recording at this ECB forum on inflation. It reminds me of Princess Bride, the great Vizzini, played by Wallace Shawn, right? Inconceivable. Remember that whole thing, right? So his quote in Princess Bride was, you fell victim to one of the classic blunders, never get involved in a land war in Asia. That made about as much sense as what Powell's quote was yesterday, which was, we understand better how little we understand about inflation. I mean, he should resign, honest to God. That is the head of the Federal Reserve. Say what you want about the Federal Reserve. The fact that he says that is nuts. And he said again, I will hike into recession. I will hike into a slowing economy because I'm not going to make a mistake on this end. Meanwhile, every single data point that's coming out right now, inflation still high, very high. It's inching lower. But the economy is literally grinding to a halt. Retail sales are dropping off of a cliff. Gasoline, we already talked about demand destruction. And Guy, I'll get to what I think is going to happen in the second half here in a minute. Demand destruction is hurting the price of oil. We said that's going to be a conflict of whether to own energy stocks or not. What does that really mean? But again, not once has he said, I am paying attention to the S&P 500 companies and what they're telling us. So today, as we sit here, it's Thursday afternoon, nearing the close, last day of the first half of the year. What's going to happen tomorrow night? Here's my prediction. This is how we're going to start the second quarter. Friday night, holiday weekend dirties. That's what you call them, okay? Friday night dirties with a holiday weekend. They're the best time. So you have a lot of companies which will be able to tell you within 5 or 10% exactly where they stand on the quarter. They're going to release Friday night. So I don't know how many we're going to get, but we're going to get them tomorrow night. So, Guy, that's how it's going to start. And why the Fed or Powell, why there's not a common sense element to this. And again, money was free for too long. I'm not disagreeing that they should be raising rates or cutting back liquidity to the market. But Christine Lagarde said yesterday when he said that, she goes, well, I'm going to go slower. Because I think things are going to slow down. I mean, there's no excuse for pumping as much money as we did globally. But that being said, it's a drug we need to wean off of, not just come off straight away. So that's how we're going to start guiding in the second half. Second quarter numbers are going to be bad. We will officially be in a recession when second quarter GDP comes out in a month or so. And if not, and if it's 0.1% growth, who gives a shit? It feels like we're in a recession. We're in a recession. People are cutting back. So recession happens. Second quarter is going to be a puke for a lot of companies. I think the market gets to it lows in the third quarter. I think in the third quarter, July, August, September, I think we will hit, I'm not going to try to give a number, but it'll be the low 3,000s on the S&P is what I think happens. And I think that's where we find now, we may flatten out for a long period of time and bob around that level, but that's what I think is going to happen. And the reason I say that is I think the Fed will blink. I think they will stop. And again, I'm not saying that's the right or wrong thing to do. I'm feeding on the animal spirits of the market and what that means. And so, Guy, I see a very, very choppy summer. We've seen those Augusts in a couple of times in the last 10 years, which have been just brutal. I think we're going to see that again, and it's going to be a rocky road. And I think we're inverting as we speak. Who cares about the definition of a recession and who cares about definition of inversion? So it's three bips, four basis points between the two and the 10 year. I don't need that stuff to happen to tell me what's happening, but things are going to get bad and it may actually feel worse than it actually is for a period of time. And that's when I think we bought them some time in the next three months. So this is a bit of a rhetorical question because I do think I know the answer to it, but isn't this exactly what we need to reset the system? I mean, isn't this two steps back exactly what we need to take three steps forward? Because the path we had gone on for so long was unsustainable. And at a certain point, something like this, in my opinion, 
needed to happen. And this reset, almost by definition, whether it happened too late or not, I don't even think it's the point now, it's happening. So isn't this what we need to sort of get to the other side of this entire thing? It is. But the one thing I didn't mention there, and it's just I can't put a price on it, is geopolitical risk has never been greater, both in the United States and outside the United States, right? Things feel very unsettled everywhere. And that element of that risk adding into the market only makes it harder to feel comfortable in a position or to feel like the government's got your back. And you think about what's going on in crypto right now and what's happening right now. Now people are begging that there was government intervention. They wish it was regulated to protect them. Billions are going out the door, vanishing. And so these things are all occurring in real time and we can't just hit the pause button. And I always joked about crypto. People wanted the stock market to trade 24-7. Please. People love that crypto trades 24-7. Please believe me, talk to any crypto professional out there right now. They would love to not have to be halt trading for a day yes. or two. So. So, so Danny, the way you're talking about how bad things are, you're really talking about some of the financial conditions and as it relates to markets too. And Guy, I'm just curious your thoughts here because if you're just the average sort of investor out there and you're feeling these inflationary pressures in your personal consumption, whether it be food, whether it be energy, you've had the benefit of a solid balance sheet for the most part. A lot of America have during the course of the pandemic and coming out of it. We hear that corporate balance sheets are really good shape. We know that there are pockets of over-exuberance and overbuilding and all that sort of stuff. But if you were just that average American consumer and investor, and you're looking at the S&P 500 down 20%, so let's say it's your 401k or whatever, are you panicked yet? Does it feel horrible? Do you know that many people who are out of work yet? Do you know any people who have canceled a vacation because they were spending too much on gas at the pump? So I'm curious because we stare at these screens every day. We overthink all of this. We talk about it a lot. Has it seeped into everyday Americans? And then let's also remember here that it's been a kind of fucking crazy couple years from we're used to or conditioned to a sort of very volatile lifestyle right now. I'm with Danny on the geopolitical thing. I think it's completely underappreciated by the market. But in terms of does it feel like capitulation? Has it made its way into everyday America? You know, the definition of a recession is your neighbor lost his or her job. The definition of a depression is you lost your job. And we haven't obviously gotten to that point yet. But listen, we're getting seemingly day by day closer. And I think my pushback all the time is What difference does it make if we're in a recession, not in a recession? Does it really make a difference in terms of the market? And some of the pushback I get, maybe correctly so, is that definition, if in fact we are there statistically, might give companies air cover to do things they probably should have done a while ago. And that's problematic. So are we at the forefront? Yeah. In terms of answering your question, should people panic? I mean, that's such a difficult word to assess. People use that word. I think they associate it always with selling. And I would submit, and I've done it for years on Fast Money, and I've done it here on the podcast, that we see panic to the upside as well. And until recently, I think a lot of the panic that we've seen over the last couple months has been to the upside in the form of these six, seven, eight hundred point updates seemingly out of nowhere. Now we're starting to see potentially a little bit about panic on the downside. But should the everyday person panic? No, you obviously staying the course has been the right course of action for decades, and it's going to be the right course of action now. But what it should allow you to do, almost force you to do, is understand what you own. We talk about that all the time. And understand what your expenses and what your lifestyle is like. And maybe instead of worrying about what the other guy and gal is doing, which I think has been such a huge problem in this country for so long, focus on what you're doing at home. One of the interesting things I'm reading is that it may backfire this working remotely. And the reason I say that is companies 
obviously are figuring out how efficient or inefficient some of their systems are by people that aren't coming into the office. And I think you're going to see people start to come into the office more out of the insecurity of that. So I think we're going to see a little bit of a change here. People that want to have FaceTime guy to your point about definition of recession, depression, whatever. I don't think people are going to wait. I think that's going to change quickly because people, if they're not connected physically, sitting next to somebody just changes and it makes you more insecure. So I think that's going to happen. One of the areas that I think we need to discuss and not so much the value of Bitcoin and Ethereum and all this stuff is the amount of leverage that's in the crypto system. So when the world blew up in 2008 and 2009, it was because the government had no idea how levered all these mortgages were and prepackaged and all these different things, right? CDOs and all this stuff. I think that because crypto is unregulated, we're now seeing, I mean, I don't even add up the amount of billions that are disappearing by the day or the bailouts or the leverage and these lending platforms like Celsius. And thank God for SBF, a 30-year-old genius from MIT that's going to come in and save the day and buy things up at pennies on the dollar. I don't know. All I'm saying is this is having a reverberation much bigger. And I used to say, I think of Bitcoin as a $600 billion, $800 billion entity. I think of Ethereum as a three to $400 million, wherever these things are at this point. But I didn't take into account the contagion that exists because if you start to add up the leverage on the, all these platforms, even if it was, quote, fake money that just existed in the ether, it existed on people's balance sheets and it's disappearing but, but, by the second. I'm just to push back for a second. Go ahead. Because, listen, it's global, though. When you think about our stock market, it's really focused on a U.S. investor set. And so that's one of the reasons why I just push back a little bit about the leverage in the crypto system and the thought that it's so concentrated here. So let me push back on that. Yeah. So- there are jobs being rescinded, kids that just got out of college that were going to work at blockchain. Would they believe it or not? I mean, this technology is going to be here to stay. What form it's going to be. Those jobs are disappearing by the second. So you want to talk about where there is a depression and where things are happening. It's that particular area. And it doesn't take much. My point is that even if that's one to two to 3% of people's portfolio, some people it's 70%. Those are the doctors. Yeah, but those but, are the same people who are 90% in AMC. And- but it is a confidence factor in the markets. And I think those people equate crypto exchanges and these things sometimes with investing and with the market. And these things were shells. But it was the same thing with people after the financial crisis. And it was the same thing with the people after the dot-com bust. I just think when we really do the postmortem, it's going to look the same as those things. I agree. But I think in real time, my point is it's adding a lot of fuel right now to the fire and just the lack of confidence. People, Dan, are going to group them together for now. If they're going to say they're going to think stock market, crypto market, whether there's a group of investors that think of it that way. We talked about the gamification a year and a half ago when we started this. We talked about how people view it. And my point is that it's a con game. It's a confidence game in terms of how people want to get back in. And I'm saying structurally, the confidence has disappeared from that market. And what I mean is that I think that's going to hurt the average retailer. So it's just another thing that we have to deal with. And I agree. It's like the dot-coms in 2001, 2002. They were going to go to zero there, except for the fact there is no regulator backing this. It's this SBF character that's going to, quote, come in and save the day. And Tether hasn't imploded yet. I guess the point is, is like, okay, it's fine. There's only a half a dozen cryptos that really matter. And I know you're focused on these stable coins and you're saying, what's the leverage there? I'm looking at a bunch of stocks in the tech market. These are products and services we use every day that we're not particularly worried they're going to be disintermediated by blockchain technology. So here's the deal. Facebook meta is down 60%. Netflix is down. This is on the year 71%. Lyft is down 70%. I mean, the list goes on and on. PayPal down this. Shopify is down 80%. So there's plenty of much bigger market cap companies that are going to be more affected on the employment front, on the wage growth front. So to me, I actually think crypto is a bit of a sideshow. I don't give a shit about it. I'm long a little ETH and I'm long a little Solana. Unless you are right, unless Tether breaks... 
and then we see what the knock-on effects are. I just still don't think that it's just that big of a thing. Can I say one last thing, crypto, and we'll move on? I said this for years. Why aren't the good actors calling out the bad actors? Why? Where are they? Like, you believe in your industry, speak up, say something. Like, everyone's just frozen right now. So I just wanted to add that part, too. That makes sense. You've been making that point. I think that's fair. You know, what also is going to come up, and we don't necessarily talk politics here, but only through the lens of what it means for the market. And before you know it, both of you guys know this, we're going to be talking about midterm elections and the impact they could potentially have on the market. And I think the impact for this midterm election is probably as large as it's been that I can remember, because I'm thinking about it now, and I don't remember ever thinking about it in terms of the market for a while. But I'll say this, Danny, you mentioned geopolitical risks. There's so much, you know, the polarization here at home is such that I think regardless of the outcome of the midterms, people are going to be pissed off. With that said, it's going to have huge market ramifications as well. And like it or not, if there were, let's just say, some red wave in November, one has to wonder, could that be the turning point for the market? Again, not asking your political thoughts, just in terms of history and that playing out, Dan. Listen, that first term, midterm, we have a lot of data on that. And I'm hard pressed to think that anything other than a red wave happens here. Just look at Biden's approval ratings. And I think that it could only get better here, I think, for the market. So the idea that we don't have a White House and a legislative body in the same camp here. And I think the approval ratings are telling you all you need to know about Congress and the job that they think they're doing. So in some ways, might we have a crescendo into the fall? And to Danny's point, I mean, listen, at some point, there's going to be a 20% rally off of the low. And the lower we go, the more we're likely to rally off of that low. And if sentiment gets really bad into that, and the polls are showing this, and we know that there's a couple tape bombs out there that could be a positive thing, if we were to see some sort of de-escalation in the situation with Ukraine, a lot of things could align for a big market rally. And they might not have a whole heck of a lot to do with politics, at least in the course in which they're going, but it might be a signifying some sort of change for, let's say, as we get into 2023. And we know that investors love to turn the page. They love to turn the calendar. And that will start to happen late Q3, early Q4 to your point, Danny. Yeah. Listen, we're over 30 trillion in debt. GDP is contracting. So you're less than 20 trillion in GDP. You're north of 30 trillion in debt. So to think that, quote, tax cuts are great, or that's going to be a stimulant, maybe there'll be something they'll bring forward. The thought of it may rally the market versus the actual that possibly occurring or what may or may not occur. I think we have a lot bigger issues in this country than just the stock market at that point. But still, again, it's an excuse. You're right. And normally, in that two-year cycle, when you have opposite parties controlling Congress and controlling the White House, that people like stalemates. They like when nothing can happen. I mean, that's normally the recipe for buying the market. So we'll see what happens. But it's setting up for extremely ugly summer for sure. So many of these things I find fascinating, and I rail about the bond market seemingly every day for years, and I think a lot of people are coming around to the way, I think, Danny, we think about these things in terms of just the volatility. And one of the points that I've made, if rates were to go higher from here, let's just say, as of this taping, 10-year yields are just 3% for a round number. You know, I think rates went meaningfully higher. I think that's negative. And I think if rates go meaningfully lower, which, by the way, I think could potentially happen, Danny, I think you're in that camp as well. I think that's negative. How does that shake out? How are you looking at the bond market now, given everything that's transpired over the last six months? I think it really has to do with quantitative tightening and what the Fed really does. Do they do what they say they're going to do? Do they pull that back or not? I think that holds the key because we already saw mortgage-backed securities go out way before they even started doing any of this quantitative tightening. Why? Because once the big buyers in mortgage land knew the Fed was no longer there, they were going to sell ahead of them. 
It's why mortgage rates have gone up so much. Powell doesn't seem to care. He likes it right now. He wants the economy to go into recession, literally, quote, yesterday. That's what he wants to keep seeing. So I'm convinced that we're going to be in a inverted yield curve. And I'm not talking two bips, four bips. I'm talking 20, 30, 40 basis points. And that's just not a great recipe. That, by nature, will slow things down. Banks don't like to lend when the curve is like that because it's hard to make a lot of money doing that. So the other issue, Guy, we have to deal with is the one thing happening right now is people that have home equity loans, credit lines, whatever, the consumer, I know it's not a huge amount, LIBOR plus or SOFR plus, whatever you're switching to, is up a lot. And I don't think people realize now when they're carrying an extra balance or whatever. So it's not just the mortgage rates. It's consumer discretionary spending going to continue to get hit here. I believe that the 10-year yield is going to go much lower from here. And to your point, Guy, neither is good. I would actually argue 35 to 4% is healthier than 2 to 2.5% on the 10-year. If I woke up and you said, Danny, the 10-year yield's at 2%, where's the stock market versus the 10-year yield's at 4 You wanted to ask me which one has the higher stock market? 4% has the higher stock market, not 2 Dan, we had Joe Zidel from Blackstone on Fast Money a few months ago, and he was talking about the housing market, and obviously Blackstone might be the largest participant in the U.S. housing market in the country, and you pushed back pretty hard. And I said on the show that clearly Joe was talking his book, but in the case of this, they are putting their money where their mouth is. But I think you were prescient enough to point out that, hey, wait a second, there's so many shifts going on beneath our feet that nobody's taking in consideration. By the way, we're going to talk to Bill Pulte about these things in a few minutes, but you've been ahead of the curve clearly on the housing market. Now everybody's starting to come around to your way of thinking. Thoughts of how important that is in the next six months of the year? Well, it's funny. At the time, I mean, Joe's been a great guest on Fast Money for a long time, and Blackstone, those guys are really smart. And I just thought it was interesting because he is basically helping to dictate their house view. Guy, you've talked about this on many occasions. They're one of the biggest buyers of residential housing in our country. And if you don't think that their move into that part of the market at the time in which they did, given the weird dynamics of the pandemic from a migratory standpoint, people moving out of the cities, that sort of thing. That does not give me confidence that a company like Blackstone is buying large swaths of the housing market and keeping prices bid up. The other thing that I just didn't agree with is that he thinks that housing, yeah, it could come in because we're at these kind of levels and we had this extraordinary period of low interest rates, but he didn't see unemployment ticking up. And I just don't know how those two things can live in the same economic universe when we see what's going on with yields. We see what's going on with sovereign balance sheets. We see what's going on with inflationary pressures. And what, to me, seems very obvious for a very long time is that when I hear people say that we are at 40-year lows in unemployment, and I tell you why it's going to be different this time, why it can't tick up, I'm like, that's it. That's the point. And so we had David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research on a few weeks ago, and he was giving us some data about when you have unemployment tick up three or four-tenths of a percent off of a multi-decade load, he's going back through 100 years of history, the knock-on effects for the economy are devastating. And then you throw in the point that we have a situation where the Fed has to raise, they have to be hawkish. Now, I know, Danny, you think they're going to pivot, and Guy, you do too. And I don't disagree with that. I think the pivot that comes in the second half of this year is not going to be a rate decrease. If they lower rates after going from essentially zero in Fed funds, what should be 3% by the time they pivot in the fall, what sort of credibility? Do I need to read you the quote he said yesterday again? I mean, seriously, think about the quote. I agree with you. Listen, should they? No. But you know what it is? This economy is slowing because of inflation, not because of prices of things right now. 
Fed's rate hikes are just getting into the economy now. Okay, totally. And, 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 and they haven't even started. No, I, you and I are in the same camp. So just to put a bow on Guy's question, the fact that a place like Blackstone has a house view that was articulated by Joe Zidal and Amanda, you can put that interview in the show notes here, tells me that they have not had their reckoning yet about how their house is in order and the things that they see, the downside that could happen in the U.S. economy. Where I get a little exercise is we can spend a lot of time talking about stable coins and all this crap. This is where people should be focused on. And we've been talking about it. Why have the banks been underperforming the way that they have from the highs? The banks topped out before the NASDAQ did in Q4 of last year, right? Because credit's turning. All right. But, 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 but credit hadn't turned. Yeah, but, but the, the market's smart. But the price action in the banks were, well, People that cover banks are nerds. Small part of the market is smart. Trust me, people that cover banks are nerds. They're projecting way out. They're utility stocks for the most part. They have a dividend. They have a buyback. They have credit reserve. It's very easy, actually, to analyze a bank. It's very predictable. You can't predict losses that might come from nickel at certain times. You can't predict certain things. So the stocks, though, didn't benefit. They benefited for a short period of time as they released all those reserves that they had from COVID. And the rate curve was steeper. The Fed hadn't raised yet. And we were going out and it was steepening, it was steepening, and then it all kind of ended. Well, up. Like we said last week, I mean, there have been warning signs screaming in silence for a year and a half. And the fact is the S&P is only down 21% at the end of Q2 here. We had a monster year in the S&P last year. We had a monster year in 2020, the year that we actually had a crash and a recession and a pandemic. And so 21% lower on the S&P is not enough to cure all those ills. I've said this again, the market shot up much higher than it should have. This 20% that counts as a correction or 30% off the high, it's bullshit to me. That was an irrational number that was in Q4. It never should have been there. Look where the market was in Q3. Use that as your correction number. And that's why I think you get to that 32, 3300 number in the S&P. And I want to make one comment on your Blackstone and all these large, and listen, I know smart people, great company, whatever. They have to find a place to put their money to work. They're dealing in hundreds of billions of dollars, right? Why? So they can go raise another fund and keep that money at work. But then they should keep their strategists at home and not well, talk. Let's talk about because, strategists. like, if you're going to come on CNBC and you're going to say that I think the housing market's going to be okay and I don't think unemployment's going to tick up, but I think inflation's going to stay high and rates are going to go higher. That was the sum of what he said to us, and none of it makes any sense. It's about as nonsensical as what you said. He's uh, talking. Jerome his book. Powell said yesterday. Actually, guy was brilliant. Guy said, "Well, he's obviously talking his book." Right. That's right. After that. He is talking his but book. No, and you weren't doing it in a snarky way either. No, 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 no. Not at all. I mean, you know, people think that term, it's like a term of derision or it's not at all. I mean, he should be talking his book because they have obviously not billions, probably close to a trillion dollars or so behind it. So when I say that, I was saying that here's somebody that's actually putting his money where his mouth is. And we can talk about this in a second, but I'll say this. For me, the last six months or so, it's been a real great learning experience. And you get to a certain age, you don't think you're going to learn new things, but I clearly have. And I remember you saying, Dan, specifically back earlier this year, it's not coincidental that Blackstone, the stock, topped out at 149.78 if memory serves towards the end of November of last year. And it's because we sit here right now, it's either side of 90 bucks. That's a pretty significant move. It coincides, obviously, with the Fed pivot. But the housing market's starting to give it up as well. Then you sort of look at where the home builders top that. We'll talk to Bill Pulte about that as well. And it all starts to make sense. Only in retrospect, I get it. But at the time, if you go back and look, the signs were so clear. But for me, at least specifically me, either I chose not to see them or I just completely missed them entirely. You know why? You can't meme a builder stock. You can't meme a bank stock. They're unmemeable. They're actually economically... 
balance sheet oriented companies. That's the one thing. That's why they're rational stocks. Let me just say this, talking your book, everyone should rest assured that S&P Global Ratings, remember that rating agency along with Moody's that didn't have down home prices in their forecast in 2008, 9, and 10, they're saying that economic momentum will likely protect the U.S. economy from recession in 22. Those are not the kind of things that you want to see or hear. You want to hear them say, we're going into depression. That's a sign to buy. Wall Street economists, it's up now to 44% think we're going to have a recession. What does a Wall Street economist gain by coming out and saying we're going into recession? They lose their job. So those are things you want to see. 80% people get it built into the market. And that's what I mean. I think we're going to have this washout here over the course of the summer. And I think it begs people to be in, in yes, cash is underperforming inflation. I get it. But I don't think now's the time to just be diving into the market. Now, if someone pre-announces on a Friday night dirty and we open up Tuesday in the market, it overreacts down 30%, you know, buy it. So I, I want to be really clear about this. And I think if you're listening to this podcast, you've been listening to us for a while. You're listening to On the Tape. <laughs> no, but you've heard our commentary in a lot of different ways. And I've been decidedly negative. We've all been very negative on the economy and the outlook for it and the pace in which it might have recovered given the post-pandemic period, which really never materialized. But we've also pointed out in all of our different, let's call them expertise, where we see risk that's not being appreciated since we started. So we've done that. I will tell you this. So I'm starting to pick at things. I grew up as a trader, as you guys did, short-term, momentum-driven stuff, catalyst-driven stuff or whatever. I'm actually, for the first time in a very long time, I think the disconnect that we're seeing in parts of the stock market, forget the other stuff. I'm not smart enough to deal with FX and rates and all that sort of stuff. I have to go back 20 years or go back to the financial crisis, and I wasn't so focused on financial-oriented products then, to see what I think are some multi-year opportunities right now. So talking about buying things, Guy, you and I were just talking about this earlier today on Thursday, is like, okay, some of these stocks that are down 70 80% in companies that you think are going to be around, and they have opportunities, whether it be outside the US and just overappreciated, and I'll just throw a few of them out there. I started picking at, and I'm just going to add a couple more names. I told you last month, Snap, PayPal, Today, I bought a little Netflix. Last week, I bought a little Facebook, Meta. I don't think I've ever bought that stock other than to cover a short. So to me, I'm looking at multi-year time horizons, and I'm fully prepared for another gap on a headline downgrade to guidance, you know what I mean, at some point for the balance of this year. But you got to start somehow. No one can just put their finger on what they think the bottom is. So to me, that's kind of my mindset. But I also agree, Danny, it's going to be a long slog. There's no V reversal. Even when the Fed pivots, we're going to have a short covering rally. People aren't going to believe it. Even at 10, 15% higher off of a low, people are going to start laying into it and coming up with reasons why we're going to make new lows. And that's the mistake that I'm not going to make again, is that if the S&P is down 40%, and I don't even mean again, I'm not going to be pressing that. Someone else can have that down 50%, because the likelihood that the S&P, without a global meltdown, is going to be down more than 50% in the next couple of years from that high that we made just last year, can we all agree that that's not particularly likely? Oh, Danny can't agree. Guy, you go, you go first. Danny can't agree. No, with listen, that. certain names I can totally agree with. I'm not going to try to predict the market. I'm not. But you asked me where I think things are going. Absolutely. You think the S&P stuff. can be down more than 50% from the high that it made in the first week of January of this year? Do I think it could be at 2,400? Is it pop? Dan, March 2009. Do you believe that anyone in December of 2008 thought in March 2009 the S&P would hit 666? No, it didn't. Was it the buying opportunity of the century? Yes. And you know what happened? You know when at bottom, when housing starts, I was in a meeting with an economist. He said, listen, here's the math. You can't damage housing any more than it is. There's no starts. It's a finite amount of homes that now have. So here's the demand, unless you think that people are le- fleeing, whatever. The numbers at that point made sense. Literally, it was the day the S&P bottomed. So to your point, Dan, 
you got to be willing to take a chance to be early. But if you're buying quality companies where I agree with you a thousand percent, who gives a shit? If your time horizon is three, five years, great. If your time horizon is a quarter or two months, one month, you're playing with fire. Oh yeah, but guy, give it to me here because the S&P 500 from its highs in 07 to its lows in 09 sold off 58%. We know that financials were a big part of that in the S&P from its high in 2000 to its lows in 02, I think sold off 51 or 2% or something like that. Now, obviously the NASDAQ was down 80 some percent, almost 90%. So I guess my point is sooner or later, if you have investable capital, if you avoided a lot of this disaster, a lot of the palpitations in the economy have already started to play out here, right? It's not like it hit us like a ton of bricks all of a sudden in late 08 or something like that. So I just think that's what's different to me. And I do think that what leads us out of this economic period, but also this market period, are going to be some of the same leaders of the last bull market, if you will. And so to me, there's nothing in the private markets, there's nothing in blockchain that tells me that the existing incumbents are about to be massively disintermediated. So I look at the world right now, if things were just to continue on current course, again, obviously have no idea what any ancillary events are going to be, but just current course, I can make a very cogent argument, and I think we've done so for months now, that the ultimate landing spot for the S&P is 3,200. If you think about it in terms of the math, that would be a 33% peak to trough decline from the all-time high, we saw 48.18 or so. I think it was earlier this year or maybe late December, but you understand what I'm saying, six or so months ago. So that makes sense. The math around that makes sense in terms of what the right multiple in this environment is and what I think earnings are going to be. And I think that, to me, is the opportunity probably to get in the market in a meaningful way. Danny's potential for that cutting in half, I mean, it's clearly out there. If you look at what's going on globally with central banks, right now you look at global debt to GDP north of 300%. I mean, these are ridiculous levels in rising interest rate environments around the world. And the potential for a credit blow up is absolutely out there without question. You saw what happened with Deutsche Bank over the last couple of weeks. I mean, people say Deutsche Bank is Deutsche Bank specific. Okay, I'll buy that until I don't. So is there systemic risk in the system? Potentially, but there's a credit event out there that is potentially going to happen. And quite frankly, I think there's probably a 20, 25% of that happening. If there is a credit event, I don't think that 2400 level that Danny just pointed out is out of the realm of possibility. I agree. We don't know what that's going to be, but there's certainly going to be blowups in a down economy. Tide goes out, and there's a lot of shit sitting there, and it, it will be bad. The one area I think that continues to be a struggle, I think, for all of us is energy. And we're seeing now what demand destruction is doing to oil on the margin, because certainly there's no geopolitical reason that oil should be down. But this is just waning demand a little bit. And I don't know how long it lasts. And I think that will be a sector, I do believe, that should be bought on weakness. I think these stocks should be bought on weakness over time, only because they're going to screen so well. And so we do come out of this, Dan, and people have belief in the market again. That would mean that people think the economy may start picking back up again. And unless oil is under 85 or $80, I still think that energy is a place that you can be. Not a huge allocation here. And I know people came in last in, first out, and bought at the top and, and have sold here a little bit. But I feel like that sector is going to bottom out. And I think that's the one to watch. It's going to tell us a lot about the economy. I, that I really do from a demand destruction. I'm looking at weekly, I told you guys when we opened the show, weekly gasoline demand. People are going to the pump. They're not filling the car up. They're down. It's negative. So people are, it's taking a bite out of people's wallet. And that's really what we're seeing right now. 
And just in terms of the energy conversation, Dan, and I'm just going to throw it back to you. You've had a wonderful call in terms of you didn't think it was sustainable in terms of WTI and the price appreciation, and that's coming to fruition. I'm confused in energy here. I can make a very coherent argument why the stock should be significantly higher. And then you look around the landscape and look at these companies that in large part could go the way of the dodo bird five to 10 years from now and say, how do you invest in these names that probably aren't investing in themselves? So the cross currents for energy are severe. With that said, again, status quo, I think these energy names, given the 35, 40% declines we've seen in some of these names are just too cheap in this environment. And you mean the drillers in just a short period of time? Absolutely. Not only just the drillers, but even the big cap integrated names are down significantly over the last couple of weeks, not nearly commensurate with the move in the underlying commodity. We spent some time over the last, I don't know, six to nine months talking about just what's leading what, right? Is it the commodity or is it like the underlying? We've seen just some dispersion in the price action in some of them. Guy, you've made a really good case for a long time with the underinvestment and the changing supply demand dynamics. And I am no expert as it relates to the energy thing. I just feel like crude is probably going to go the way of a lot of other commodities that we've seen that they've already signaled that they've kind of peaked. And we've seen that in copper. We've seen it in steel. We've seen it in wheat. We've seen it in a bunch of other commodities. So to me, crude topped out on that parabolic move in early March. It tried to get back up there. And now it's broken that uptrend that's been in place since early December after the Biden administration tapped the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So to me, it really feels like Divorced of fundamentals, of some fundamentals that a lot of smarter people than me feel, feels like the momentum is broken and maybe the stocks start to firm up and act better to your point about the companies and the investment that we might see in them because the whole ESG thing has been turned upside down by a global pandemic, by deglobalization, by a break in supply chains, by a shooting war. Listen, Europe is getting off their reliance on Russia. That's one thing that's happening no matter what. They're not getting off. Energy. They're not getting off yet. No, they're trying to get off by rationing gas. I mean, looking out years. Oh, yeah. That's trade's done. So there's going to be a glut in Russia. And so I just feel like in the future, there's probably better parts of the market. I think that energy is going to go back to being a low single digit percentage of the S&P 500. But let me just say this. I'll end with this. We can tie a bow on this. Is that second quarter is now coming to a close. So I'm going to start to look at which stocks are going to put up good numbers and which are going to have momentum. The energy stocks are going to crash it again in the second quarter. So you can sit there, hold your nose. You can put a blindfold on and not want to buy them. My point, Dan, is that there's no models for 110, 120 dollars. Well, the models are really 80, 85. And my point is that you got to go a lot lower before you can say these stocks don't make sense. And I'm just saying, and I'm not heavy in the names at all. I'm just saying pockets in the market where you can be safe and earn a decent dividend with a lot of stock buybacks with very little risk. And I would just say this, if oil goes below $70, we have reached the Great Recession, potentially depression. So f- forget about everything else at that point. That's all. We can wrap that up. So. I don't want to dwell on this. We've gone 40 minutes now without talking about Tesla. I mentioned Tesla. God damn it. (laughs) As we sit here, once again, it has a 600 and change handle on it. And it's fascinating to me that since their last quarter, when the stock traded almost $1,100 a share, you know, we've had some bounces along the way, but it's effectively been upper left to lower right. And I think they say the tide's going out. Well, the tide appears to be going out We haven't heard from Elon Musk on Twitter for quite some time. There's some strange things going on there, Danny. I'm not looking to wind you up, but it's happening right before our very eyes. There's something happening here. Can I say one thing really quickly, Danny, before you go into it? I actually feel like the fact that Elon Musk has not 
tweeted since June 21st. Okay, so it, it is June 30th right now. I think any comment that we make about his proof of life, I think they won't age well. I actually feel like if you want to be snarky, and I'm not saying you, I'm saying you want to tweet something snarky, it's actually might look really bad. I think this guy who has been addicted to tweeting, whether they be dumb memes about whatever, whether they be his actual stuff about his business, which you would say a lot of it should be fact-checked or this and that, whatever, he desires this attention. Something must be going on right now for him to be off this platform for nearly 10 days. Yeah, it could be a bender. It could be a lot of things. Listen, they just laid off 200 people in an office, closed an office in California. What was that office in charge of? Autopilot. What is the government investigating? These crashes. What was the recommendation by the government, the NTSB, the NHTSA, is that something's got to be done. They had exponentially higher rate of accidents. Gary Black can wax poetic about what the freaking deliveries are going to be. Who cares what the deliveries are going to be in the second quarter? This thing doesn't trade on fundamentals. It doesn't matter. It incrementally trades on various news points, which, by the way, every item has been extremely negative. And I'll tell you, you didn't ask me, but Danny, when is the market bottom? I've been saying it for years. It bottoms when this thing gets taken to the woodshed finally, because that tells me the froth is completely out of this market. Did you see Carter's note yesterday? Carter Braxton I saw your little market call with his diamond triangle to the down. That got you all geeked up. So he put a note out after that saying he sees 450. And I will just tell you this from a psychological standpoint. I know you think lower. No, no. But if you see 450, you're going to see 100. But November 2020, the stock had actually broken from its highs. It was down at least 20 some percent or something. And the S&P announced that it was going into the S&P 500. And the stock doubled in a matter of months. I mean, it went like parabolic. So I think psychologically getting back to that 400 level makes sense. I think Carter's target was 450. To put this point again, if they're negotiating with the feds over whatever, the fact that he has been off this platform for 10 days, given his need for attention, something's going on. Did you see Larry Ellison's comments about leaving the board? No. There were none. Oh. That's why. There's clearly something going on. You point about deliveries. I think the number for fiscal 22 expected is 1.39 million deliveries or something. And we're going to hear from Tesla over the next couple of weeks in terms of earnings. And I don't know if it matters necessarily, but there's so many strange things going on. And it's not a Tesla story per se, in my opinion, but what does it mean to the broader market? Because that's been such a sentiment stock for so long. And it's a big part of the S&P 500. It's a huge part. We were looking at the consumer discretionary ETF, the XLY. It's 18% of that. And, and you know what I mean? Like, So think about it. It's in- inconceivable. All right. One quick point about him. So he started the month on June 3rd by saying that he has a really bad feeling, I'm paraphrasing, about the, the economy. Which was, by the way, was- after what he recorded May 31st. Correct. So the May, and that's what I was going to say. So when he said that Giga Berlin and Giga Austin were money burning furnaces, that came out in mid June. Correct. Okay. But he had already said that, all and right? Ellison left in the middle of all of that. Yeah. Ellison left. Then they announced layoffs. Then he went back and forth salaried workers, not salaried workers. Whistleblowers got fired for complaining about working conditions. Keep going. And suing them. I mean, like, this is all happening in June. And the report from the, from the government came out about the safety record of this stuff. And full self driving does not exist. They charge $10,000 for a product that does not exist. If they have to repay, if that's what this is about, they have to repay or take them from cars or compensate people. So then some of the banks that said they were going to provide the debt for his Twitter acquisition said, maybe not. So all of this is going on. The lower his stock goes, the more commitment that he has to do to an equity standpoint, it just seems like a big heaping pile of shit. Quickly, I think the only reason why the media is not talking more about it is because there've been bigger stories to talk about, not least of which the broader market and other things. But clearly, 
there's something going on. So for me, it bears watching without question. And it's not a Tesla thing per se, but what does it mean in terms of the ramifications for the broader market? I think you absolutely have to take that into consideration. Listen, the way it works normally, not just with Tesla per se, but large companies, and it's a huge company. The government doesn't want to be responsible for effectively being blamed for putting a company out of business or really damaging, right? What they do do is they wait for it to get crushed and then they come after it. You see that all the time. You see government file lawsuits on companies that commit fraud. The fraud comes out, but the fraud's already come out and the stock's already $2 from 12. Then they say, oh, DOJ suing, SEC coming after this, that, and the other. I mean, look at some of these other EV companies, right, which have come out, which tried to follow the Musk playbook. They're all a dollar, $2, $6, whatever they might be, they're gone, right? So he's just self-fulfilled himself to this position. So we'll see what happens. We like to end on sort of some high notes. I will tell you that in terms of sectors and stuff, you look at the healthcare sector, and for me, this will be a continued theme the rest of the year. Healthcare is hung in extraordinarily well. When you look at the big cap pharma names, names like UNH and such, I think these names are going to be not only extraordinarily defensive going forward, but I actually think you can play offense with them as well. So for me, at least through my lens, that's something to watch in the second half, Dan. Yeah, the only thing I'd just say is that on June 8th, when Exxon was making a new all-time high, I think the fever pitch about energy sector and the excitement around it and the changing dynamics and the valuations and the increased investment that we're going to see and all that sort of stuff. I remember being on the set of Fast Money and we had Brian Sullivan was filling in for Melissa Lee and Brian. That is his beat, energy. And we had some strategists on from RBC, which is very focused on that sector. And they had just come from a conference that they held and they literally were like jumping out of their seats. And I'm like, Guys, new all-time highs after everything we've been through in Exxon from 14. I'm like, this is not making me particularly excited. So everybody got all in on one side of it. And what happened? The XLE, which is 40% Exxon and Chevron, sells off 25% in a straight line over the next couple of weeks. So to me, I get a little nervous when we start focusing too much on the defensive areas. We saw it in utilities. We saw it in staples. This is all in the last month. And my last point about that is when we start seeing investors come to their senses about defensive areas that they think are cheap and they should be, that's usually when we see correlations go to one. That's what we saw in June. And that's why also I think that this rally that we saw off of the lows this month was the weakest one that we've seen over the course of 2022. It does feel like something's about to happen here. I thought we were ending on a positive note. Guy, you in particular, you had a great call off of the lows. Danny, you tried to get constructive on some stuff. I also did my time horizons a bit longer. And just my scar tissue about bear market rallies is not one that they really should be played for more than a few days or a week. That's just my experience trading in the financial crisis, trading in the post.com bubble. If you are bearish, it feels like absolute dog shit to get caught long in a bear market rally when it fails. Well, anytime you can use the word dog shit, it's a good way to end. We're 18 months into our podcast and you know we've done a lot of really interesting things, but given what's going on in the world, I feel like we're just getting started. The second half of this year is going to be fascinating. There's going to be a lot of opportunities. Hopefully, we're able to present them to you in this format, Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. But when we come back, we're going to have one of the great philanthropists here in the United States, Bill Pulte, join us on the tape. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, 
and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Bill Pulte is CEO at Pulte Capital and the Blight Authority. He's also the inventor of Twitter Philanthropy, a concept of direct giving on social media. Bill has received many accolades in his life, including being named in Forbes Magazine's 30 Under 30 list. He's passionate about entrepreneurship his community, and the belief that there is strength in numbers. He is the grandson of the founder of home-building giant Pulte Group. So every once in a while on Twitter, somebody follows me, and I'm like, holy shit, that person followed me. For example, recently, Niels Lofgren of the E Street Band followed me. I thought that was pretty cool. Miami Steve Van Zandt, people like that, professional athletes. I'm always fascinated. But a few years ago, out of the blue, seemingly, somebody followed me that I was really taken aback because I've obviously heard of the company. I knew the man and took a little time, but we became, I want to say, Twitter friends, but I consider him more than that. And I got to tell you something. If you don't follow Bill Pulte on Twitter, you're doing Twitter wrong. I think he currently has about 3.2 million followers, but that's not the reason why. The reason is he's taken philanthropy to a new level, and we're going to talk about that. But it's a great deal of honor that we welcome Bill Pulte to On the Tape. Bill, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, guys, for having me. Now, thanks for joining us. And let's get into philanthropy real quick, because I think that's really important. I don't want to bury the lead here. But what you've done with what you call Twitter philanthropy with your, I think you call them your, basically your teammates. It's really extraordinary, the amount of money you've given away and the amount of people you've given money to. Yeah, we believe that the future of philanthropy is going to be direct donations given to individuals, cutting out the red tape, cutting out the overhead, cutting out the fancy balls, and really just trying to go ahead and send money to people who are in critical need. So, Guy, what we do every day is basically we get on Twitter and through teamgiving.com as well as my Twitter, we give to people who are dying of cancer, people who can't afford rent because they're out of work due to chemotherapy, people who don't have teeth people who need diabetes pumps but can't afford it. These are the things that, in my opinion, technology should be used for. And there's such hate, such division in this world right now that, to me, it's like we use technology for all this hate. Why aren't we using it for some of that good? So that's what we try to do, and we try to keep it entertaining at the same time. You do an amazing job. And you mentioned the hatred that we all get on Twitter. I think at a certain point, we all are subject to it. But even when you're doing the right thing, you're succeeding at doing the right thing. There's still people that push back. I know it's got to frustrate you, but how do you combat the trolls that we all seem to endure? 
Well, what I learned a long time ago was that you really have to push back on these people because if you don't, then it can become a problem. And so I try to address it straight up. And so, for example, if somebody says to me, well, you know, you gave this guy thousand dollars for his teeth, you should have bought him a house as well. That's just a ridiculous comment that people make. And it's not even the person saying it because the person who doesn't have teeth, they don't need a home in addition to teeth. They just want to have teeth so they can smile. So I try to call out these trolls and I think it's actually pretty effective because what we're doing, in my opinion, is so positive that we just have to address those who are hating on it because often the people who are hating on it, frankly, they have teeth. They're not dying of cancer. They don't need diabetes insulin pumps. It's only the people who don't need those things that find some way to bitch and moan about everything under the sun. A lot of these people I wouldn't even think have the means to be on Twitter. I mean, yes, they have a cell phone, but it's not something they engage in. So if they're not on Twitter, how do you bring them there in order to make this transaction work? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, look, I'm only trying to do one piece of the whole puzzle in my little corner of the universe. And so far, I have about a million seven teammates, as I call them on Instagram. So I have a fairly large following on Instagram, but I haven't found that many of these other social networks are as viral and where people can really put their needs out there. For instance, like on Instagram, how would you be able to show, for example, a photo that you don't have teeth? It's easier to do that on Twitter. So I definitely don't have all the answers. We're definitely not solving the world's problems here. Well, we're just trying to do our part in that corner of the universe, which happens to be a growing universe. I mean, I think Twitter is going to continue to be bigger and bigger over time. And so hopefully we are able to get to more and more people. Luke twelve forty eight. to whom much is given, much is required. And I'm not suggesting you've been given anything, but I think you would acknowledge that you're fortunate in so much as the family that you grew up in. Can you speak to your family? Pulte Homes changed their name, I think in 2010 to Pulte Group, but the company was, I think, founded in 1950. So it's 72 years old. Extraordinary if you think about it. Can you speak to sort of the origins and how important your family has been along that. And I'm really interested if you really want to drill down because we have the forum to do it here. Sure. So my name's Bill Pulte. The founder of Pulte Homes was my grandfather, who I was very close with. His name was Bill Pulte. And so it's often not worth convincing people, but believe it or not, 15% of my net worth was inherited. 85% I actually made through doing essentially leveraged buyouts in the building products industry. And I'm still doing that day in and day out. I have eight portfolio companies. Out of college, I went and worked in private equity. And so I learned how to do essentially leveraged buyouts right out of college. And that's what I've been doing. Now, in 2014, 2015, I happened to approach my grandfather. We had been working with each other for a few years, the founder of Pulte Homes, Bill Pulte, my grandfather. And We had been talking and doing a bunch of different things. I had a bunch of, as I mentioned, portfolio companies in the building product space. Obviously, he was a genius, especially when it came to designing products in homes. So we worked on my countertop business. We did a charity together as well. And slowly but surely, we just really hit it off. And it's not to say when I was a kid that I didn't hit it off with him, but he has 14 kids. He has 25 grandchildren. None of them were in the family business at all. None of them. And I was fortunate to really hit it off with him. And we got talking about his business. And he says, man, I wish you were older because I probably would have figured out a way to have you be in the business. And around this time, and Danny knows this, we were running in a situation where the stock was stagnant. It traded up to about $45, $46 in the peak right before the global financial crisis. And then it had crashed down to $3 and change. And then it had rebounded, like a lot of the builders, up to about $17 a share. But the stock price was just really, really stagnant. 
And so I got to, frankly, really lead that charge with my grandfather and some of the other Pulte Homes executives to turn that business around. We really started to do our due diligence in terms of really coming up with the game plan, what we were going to do starting in kind of 2014, 2015. By 2016, my grandfather was fully on board with it. So we kicked out the CEO at the time. We put some new directors on the board. I went out and located Elliott Management, which interestingly, Elliott, huge activist fund. They're usually on the opposite side of families. In this case, they were actually a proponent of the family. So that was kind of new for everybody involved. My experience with them was great working with them. Guys like Danny and other people supported that whole movement. And, you know, I feel very passionate about it. I mean, obviously, it's my name. It's a Fortune 500 company. It was the number one home builder in the country. Now it's number four. But we're going to keep trying to help it in any way we can. I remember meeting you guys. Obviously, we talked about this when Porter and Vinny were on the spaces that we had a couple of weeks back. And you came in there and it was so genuine. And I think that's the one thing that I will say about you. Certainly the work that you do for people giving money away is that you're genuine and you actually care and you come across that way. And that resonated with us. And I remember the stock, it was 2016. It was, you're right. It was between kind of 14 and 19 trying to find its direction. And eventually it certainly found its direction higher, much higher. I know it's come off here. We had rates move higher and things in building. We could talk about that later, but certainly it found its footing and I think the culture of the company with your grandfather, and I know your father was a builder down in Florida, but was not involved directly in Pulte, but I think just the understanding of the business resonated. And that's key. I don't care what industry you're in. I don't care what you're managing. I think we always talk about meeting CEOs, meeting board members, and you guys came across as clear, honest people. And to us, that was the most important. And I think for homes, more for us at our firm, we kind of rented them, no pun intended, as trades, because they are so cyclical, not as bad as airlines, but they are cyclical and you got to pick your points. It was no question that that was a great point to enter. And I think you helped us make a lot of money. So I appreciate that. I wanted to go back to you and I both had dreams of being sports broadcasters. And when I looked, you went to Northwestern, the number one broadcasting journalism school in the country. Sorry, Syracuse. Sorry, Dan. And then you ended up obviously going into private equity, doing other things. I had the same experience. I was going to be a sports broadcaster. And then I found out all my friends from college at Emory were moving up to New York. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm going there. That seems like more fun than covering high school football in Iowa or something. So similar. It's funny how these teams come back. But I think one of the reasons I'm guessing you wanted to be sports broadcasting is you're energetic, you're passionate about everything that you do and all the side businesses that you had in college and all the helicopter license that you got because you were inspired by Jack Bauer in 24. You're that kind of person. And if everyone else was like you, this world would be a much better place. And I just wanted to say that I think you're a great role model, I think, in business and both personal for really setting the bar for people to look up to. Well, thank you. And you did your homework, Jack Bauer. I hadn't thought about that in a while. But yeah, that sounds great. And I appreciate it. And we get a lot of heat. People say, oh, you should be doing more. Honestly, I'm just trying to do my little piece. And Mother Teresa said something and I'm in no way, I'm like the opposite of her. But Mother Teresa said something like you try to throw a rock in a pond or something and the waves reverberate. That's all we're trying to do with Twitter philanthropy is just vibrate the surface area of the world for charity and philanthropy. So, Bill, you get a ring. You hear that these guys from Seawolf, Danny, Vinny, and Porter, the movie, the book, they're already out, the big short. These guys made their bones, right, shorting the U.S. housing market. How did it feel when you heard that these guys are interested in getting long Pulte homes? And obviously, it sounds like you were very integral in repositioning the company in the post-financial crisis. Yeah, I think it was only me and a Wall Street analyst who went and met with the guys. And I was, I don't know, Danny, I think I was 26 or 27 at the time. So if I didn't know a lot now, I definitely didn't know a lot then, but that was some good times. And I was, obviously I was nervous. I think we had seafood for lunch. And I'll tell you, I went and met with 
probably hundreds of investors. I had already met with Elliot by that time and everything, and nothing against the guys at Elliot, but the questions that Danny and his team were asking me, what about this? What about that? I think I answered them correctly because my interest in the business is genuine and that came across. And so you guys obviously took a leap of faith and I appreciate that. We always had a rule and we were notorious for being quote short sellers, but I think really notorious for being skeptical. And 80% of the time we couldn't get a meeting because either companies would assume we were short and so they didn't want to talk to us, but that to us was always a red flag. And to be perfectly honest, we were not short Pulte at the time at all. That I know 100%. As a matter of fact, I think we were probably long it. But my whole thing is if you're short a company and I'm a CEO of the company and I have nothing to hide and I would go into that meeting as fast as I could to talk about the thesis and why I may be wrong. And conversely, if we're long a company and I would want to talk to the largest short seller, I would go find a short seller to find out what I might be missing. So I think we garnered a lot from each other in that meeting. But like I said a few minutes ago, I think the one thing that came across, and I think that you were only 26 or 27 at the time, it was a huge advantage. You had no scar tissue. You didn't know enough to know about what maybe had transacted on Wall Street at the time or how home prices were so crucial to everyone's thesis across all financial products in general. And that's what I think was so great about it is you kind of came in there eyes wide open and so did we. So my grandfather, I think he was 79 or 80 years old. God love him, but he wasn't a spring chicken anymore. And I knew that at some point he'd pass away and he's now passed away, but I had to get the job done and I had to get it done before he passed away. So to me, there was no choice. I'll say this though, it's been fascinating because to your point about people and not going to meet with investors and stuff is they'll go with the pre-screened investors. They'll go with the safe people, the public company CEOs. But it really takes, in my opinion, a very confident public CEO, somebody who's confident in themselves to go and meet with somebody like yourself because these guys are making 10, 15, 20 million dollars, some cases more than that per year. So for them to go into that room with you guys, even though the seafood looked great, a lot of these public CEOs, they hide under their bed sheets because they don't want to get questioned. You never know who's going to emerge in the crypto world. And I got to tell you, we've been doing fast money as Danny's unfortunately come to know for the last 15 and a half years. And we only started talking about Bitcoin, I think, in earnest somewhere in the middle of 2017-ish. But you were long before that. I think you started getting into Bitcoin around 2015 or so, Bill. So I'm curious, what was the catalyst for you? You're a Midwestern guy. You're not obviously from one of the coasts, you're not sort of groomed in that classic sense of, you know, the technology people from the West Coast or some of the high-flying bankers out here on the East Coast, yet Bitcoin captured your fancy almost seven and a half years ago. Well, I'll tell you this. One of the things that really increased my conviction in Bitcoin, and I do think that it trades obviously very volatilely, and I think it's a commodity. Who knows if it'll be a currency one day, but that's just my opinion. But guy, when I saw the virality of Bitcoin on Twitter, I said to myself, wow, this thing is going places. And this, I don't know, this is probably when it said $3,000 a coin. And what I mean by the virality is, especially when you have a bigger account, which you guys all do, you know, you get to see things that are happening in the world at scale and you get to see how people react to things at scale. And my conviction has only grown in Bitcoin over the years. I remember this guy, I started really giving out Bitcoin over the internet, meaning sending it to people in 2019. And I'll say this, the frequency by which people are communicating with it in the beginning, people were very skeptical. Now it's just normal. So here's my view on Bitcoin, and I'm curious as to your thoughts. I think Bitcoin was born out of this concern that central banks globally were running amok and was a fear of fiat currencies all exploding simultaneously. And 
That was true. For the lion's share of the life of Bitcoin, that was absolutely true. I don't think it's coincidental, Bill. I'm curious as to your thoughts that Bitcoin topped out in the fall of last year. Around the same time, our Fed pivoted from being extraordinarily accommodative to extraordinarily hawkish and trying to fight inflation finally. What are your thoughts on that? Because I do think at a certain point, this Fed will pivot once again. And I happen to think that's going to be the green light for Bitcoin to go higher. Yeah, to me, I think there's two things. There's the use case for Bitcoin, and then there's the price of Bitcoin. As it relates to what you're talking about in terms of the Fed pivot, raising interest rates, obviously, that's going to materially affect the price. From my perspective, just from a philanthropic perspective, and from a, I call it virality, Mr. Beast, who I've worked with quite a bit, the big YouTuber, he's taught me a lot about how to make things go viral and how to get the large audiences interested in it. From a use case perspective, Guy, I will tell you this. If Twitter continues to take market share internationally, and even if Twitter doesn't, I think that the use case for Bitcoin will continue to expand. Now you say, Bill, who the hell's really using Bitcoin? You go to these third world countries, you look at the people in Africa, you look at the people in Brazil, you look at the people in South America who are all messaging me every day on Twitter. Um, and many of them get wiped off because they're, they're viewed as, as bots, but some of these are actually human beings. I mean, the use case for Bitcoin to me is to take a lot of these impoverished countries out of poverty that are dependent on these corrupt dictators for currency and whatnot. Now, I know there's a lot of controversy around Bitcoin and the El Salvador guy is doing, you know, maybe he's gone to the full other end of the spectrum. But my point being is if you're in some remote village in Africa, would you rather have somebody send you electronically Bitcoin or the local currency in terms of preserving your wealth? And that to me, I think is the biggest thing for Bitcoin and frankly, something that can drag people out of poverty. Bill, I would just add one thing, and you know the debate very well. And so it really is right now for a lot of people in these third world countries, it's not easily accessible to the banking systems that exist. And so your point about the depreciation of local currencies in some of these third world countries is also an issue. I also think there's two kind of mindsets. Is it going to be something that the unbanked can tap? and kind of enter this global financial economy that exists in the developed world? Or is it really something else that is a store of value that can help, as you say, pull people out of poverty? Right now, it seems like we're still in really early phases of all of that. There's just been experiments. Guy just mentioned back in 2017 here in the States, there was this retail frenzy and with it came ICOs and a bunch of scams. And then we had this long crypto winter. And then we have finally institutions come in and start seeing other sovereigns start taking a look at it. You're seeing a lot more development in and around it. And still, to your point, it still has the promise. We've talked to Michael Saylor on numerous occasions, Guy and myself over the last year and a half or so. And this is his long-term vision also. But then again, you get to a point, it was like the on-ramps aren't that easy. There's still a lot of scams. We're still really early on. And it's kind of funny. This is all developing in front of our eyes here. And a lot of people would say, hey, listen, PayPal works pretty good too. What are you saying to the naysayers now that we have Bitcoin at 20,000 down from 69,000 in a matter of seven or eight months or so? Well, again, that's the price. Frankly, I think the price could go down way more, but I think that's independent of the use case. To your point, we don't know how the future is going to unravel. People could say, well, the use case is bullshit for Bitcoin, to which I would say the two things that I'm watching in terms of the use case for Bitcoin, and you're saying with the on-ramp, and I think it's a great question, is I would watch Jack Dorsey and what he does in Africa, and then I would watch Elon Musk and with these satellites, because 
this may sound crazy, but in five or 10 years, maybe not so much, where if Jack can get into Africa and get into these other places and create those on-ramps with those banking institutions, Bitcoin might have a very, very promising future, almost as a global reserve currency. Now, you could say that's bullshit, but is it a possibility or a probability? I don't know. I'd like to think it's more of a probability that in five or 10 years, those on-ramps have been built. The Jack Dorseys and the Elons of the world have penetrated. I mean, Jack Dorsey was going to go move to Africa for a year. Now, a lot of people made fun of him, but the guy's worth a lot of dough for a reason, I think. So I just would keep an eye on him. So, Bill, I know your grandfather passed away, I think, in 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Later stages of his life. But I would love to know what he thought about Bitcoin, if he had a thought on that. And the reason I ask that is because traditional finance people, certainly guys that build with their hands probably think, what is this thing? So that's my first question. My second question is a lot of bad actors, as Dan just mentioned, within Bitcoin. And the problem I have right now and with all these stable coins and Tether is I don't see enough of the people that truly believe in Bitcoin to the example that you're giving, calling these people out more and these frauds and these lending platforms. I mean, we've had every other day there's been billions of dollars that are absconded with or that turned out to not be really on account. So first question and then the second question, did your grandfather ever get to really see Bitcoin or have an opinion on it? I'd love to get that. Well, I think that he wouldn't necessarily understand computers the way that we all would. And he definitely didn't. I can't tell you how many times I tried to get him to use email and those type of things. But I think generally speaking, the principles of Bitcoin, I think why it's so attractive and again, it gets to the anti-corrupt nature of it. Now, yes, you could say that there are human beings who use Bitcoin for corrupt purposes, like these crazy yields and all these things. But I would argue that Bitcoin in and of itself is not corrupt. And so I think that my grandfather would really like that, being a Depression-era boy, seeing the corruption. I mean, he even saw it at Pulte Homes, how the CEO... He used to say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's what often happens with a lot of these public company CEOs. And so the idea that there's not somebody who can theoretically corrupt Bitcoin, I think, is extremely attractive. And then your second question, I think that that's why I have more respect for the Elons and the Jack Dorseys. And I know Elons hype and Dogecoin and those type of things. But these guys who are buying this Bitcoin on this tremendous leverage and these yields and this kind of stuff, to Dorsey's credit, at least, I don't know what Elon does. I don't think that they're leveraging the Bitcoin that's on their balance sheet. But Dorsey's always been really consistent and said, hey, look, Bitcoin is the gold standard. Don't believe all these other ICOs. I don't know if you saw, but he came up with this Web 5.0 to mock Web 3.0. So he's trying to call bullshit out on a lot of these ICOs and scams. So I agree. I wish people would be doing it more, but I'm sorry. But if people are going to be putting in their money into these kind of leverage vehicles and keeping their money on exchanges, I mean, at some point, people got to smart enough for themselves, I think. You know, Bill, we get pretty granular in terms of the market on fast money. We do it, obviously, on, on the tape here. Your views from 35, 40,000 feet are much different. I'm sure there's some similar views as to what we have, but what are your thoughts? I know the economy and the market are two different things, but just if you can sort of wax poetic about what you're seeing and what you think is going on right now. Well, when Danny mentioned the GFC and Dan was also mentioning it, a lot of people look at that as a crisis. I looked at it as a huge learning experience for the housing industry. And I think all of the big home builders learned that lesson. Their balance sheets are very strong. I don't know if you guys know this, and Dan, you, you may know this, but the builders around 2000 had about 10% of the market share, the big builders. Today, they have over 30% of the market share. And it's very hard to build new homes. 
after the great financial crisis, it was very hard to get financing for new homes. And so I guess what I'm saying is I share many of the same concerns we do about the slowing growth, the rising inflation. But I would just say structurally, I think the builders and Danny, I'd be curious as to your perspective, are in much better shape because they learned those hard lessons. But I think that you're going to start to see um, an economy that's going to slow down. I think it's been slowing down. Frankly, I've been out of the market since about January. I've got I guess I call it luck. I've been 100% cash since January. So I guess I got lucky on that one. But, you know, that's my perspective. Well, real quick, before you say you got lucky, I also know that you reach out to a lot of people. I know that because you've reached out to me over the years. You know, what are your thoughts on the market? And you ask very thoughtful questions in terms of what I'm seeing. So I think part of your work, the luckier you get. And I think to a large extent, that luck was based on a lot of different conversations you have had over the years. Maybe you can speak to that as well, because I know you do reach out to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I had pretty much 100% of my net worth in Q's. I had like a $15 million position in Tesla, which was just ridiculous for me to have. And I sold that damn near the top as well. I kind of momentum traded those things. I made a bunch of money this year and last year, but I've really gotten an appreciation for kind of the growth and in inflation and some of the Ray Dalio stuff and the stuff being in rate of change terms and the slowdown. I'll tell you this too. One of the things my grandfather always used to tell me was housing is the first to go out and it's the first to come back in. And so when I started to see the kind of softness in the middle of last year, in fact, I remember I was telling my dad, because Pulte stock was at $62 a share. I said, wow, because that was damn near the peak. But when I saw the builders start to take a haircut first, and then I saw some of the growth in inflation data, that's what got me to just say, get me out of these queues and get me out of the Tesla. We've talked about on the show many times that builders were the only rational sector at the time. They were actually showing us what was happening at the time and what was going to happen. So you're 100% right. And we always look at the bond market as kind of the indication for equities, but I think housing has both inside of it, right? It did it in 2018 as well. And then the builders actually let it back out because people were just saying, oh, we're going into recession back in 18 when the Fed blinked. Yeah, but I think that the cost of materials for the builders was hitting them first while the housing market was still apparently strong. So the margins were getting squeezed. And so builders were caught in a predicament. I mean, they could certainly sell on spec and, and do this, but they would have to build. And I think their costs were going up so dramatically that they took a pause. And I'm sure you were sensing that and got a feel for that, which was the impact we're seeing now that the Fed was misreading inflation. And I've seen you quoted that you did not ever believe it was transitory. You thought it was sticky. And so good on you. You were right on. And I'm sure that helped you in your thesis of getting out of the market in general that people were underestimating. But the one thing I think, and I know you're a young guy, but you grew up and you were a teenager when the global financial crisis hit, but you've seen what the Fed has done. And what the Fed has done in terms of pumping money into the system had a direct impact and a tailwind for housing specifically. One, by buying mortgage-backed securities, which keep mortgages cheap, and two, by buying treasuries, which in effect keep everything cheap. And to bailed out the mortgage bond market in 2020. The last two years of housing would have been a disaster. Correct. And so all that wrapped up into one, I think you're not giving yourself enough credit for really having your finger on the pulse there. So you're way beyond your years and you're much more sophisticated than 95%, certainly of the people at your age and probably 90% of the people that are out there trading. And the problem we're having right now in this market is there's a whole generation and they're actually your age. I mean, the average age on Robinhood is 32 years old. And it's dropping by the second because people are leaving the platform or they're losing their money. But the point is that they hadn't seen a cycle yet. And I just think your grandfather and your family instilled and you were very observant. And I think that's a real key component of this, of understanding the markets. Most people think that I inherited my money and stuff, and it's almost not even worth convincing people of. So I appreciate you recognizing that, though. 
It's definitely not worth trying to convince. What I've learned on Twitter is people are so dug in, it really doesn't matter what you say. They're convinced regardless, and it becomes somewhat futile. But what's not futile, I don't think, is serving the public in politics. I guess you get the politicians you deserve in this country, and that's on both sides of the aisle right now. I mean, I can rattle off 10 names, both Democrat and Republican, that I'm hard-pressed to believe would be elected dog catcher, let alone congressman or woman. With that said, you seem like somebody that would be a perfect candidate for something, mayor, governor, senator, those types of things. You're shaking your head no, but I think you could do an extraordinarily great amount of things for a large group of people in that type of forum. Any thoughts on that? My goal really is to, it's kind of like my grandfather did with Pulte Homes, where he started out with one home and then did a subdivision and then productionized it. I'd like to do that with philanthropy. I believe that Social Security, Medicaid, I mean, you guys know the numbers better than me. I don't know how we're going to afford this stuff going forward in the country. And so to me, call it a safety net, you could call it whatever. To me, it's like if we can figure out a way where people can donate to each other, that can have a tremendous impact on helping people. So that's really where my interest is. I see these politicians and stuff. Number one, I don't even know how much they can get done. I mean, you guys tell me what you think, but I don't even know how much they can get done. And number two is it's just a miserable way to live. You don't get anything done most of the time. And then it's just filled with such hate. No, I hear you. What you can and can't get done and a great way, not a great way to live. You're living a pretty cool life. Can you speak about, other than the philanthropy, other than the things you got going on, talk to me about Bill Pulte, the husband, and what you have going on in your life. Yes, I got two kids, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, two girls. So very excited about that. My wife and I got married about five, six years ago. So just starting a young family and doing that and That's why I was happy. You know, I said it was luck, but watching the housing and then seeing growth slow down, especially with a new family and we want to have more kids and we live a pretty nice life. Where do you guys think that people can invest right now? I mean, other than cash. Well, first things first, Bill, a little pro tip here. I don't know if your wife is going to listen to your podcast here, but about five or six years ago married, I'm just going to tell you, you want to tighten that up a little bit. I've been married for 22 years. I like to be as specific as possible, okay, on that one. Five years, five months. How about that? There you go. Well, interesting to hear that a lot of your investable capital was in the queues last year. And it seems like obviously some of your age group, you've grown up with some of these companies that have dominated the NASDAQ 100, if you will. And then obviously Tesla. And I also understand why Tesla and Elon Musk capture the imagination of people, let's say, who came up, let's say, in the 90s or something like that. In many ways, he appears to be a visionary as it relates. You mentioned the satellites, but also really trying to transform the electric grid and obviously space and all that sort of stuff. So I get it. And I'll let Danny in on that if he wants to say anything in and around that. But one of the things that I find really interesting about the NASDAQ 100 is that I think when we come into this next leg of a bull market, whether that's six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, who knows? I don't really see anything in the public markets right now that are going to displace the importance of those top five or six stocks, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, Meta. And those five stocks make up 25% of the S&P 500. They make up more than 40% of the NASDAQ 100. So I actually think the QQQ is very interesting here. I think that especially as we get longer into this bear market, there's dozens of stocks in the NASDAQ 100 are down 
60, 70% or so. So they've just had a over valuation reset. Some of them will come back, some of them won't, but you're going to get plenty of them that are up two, 300% in a few years. And then you'll probably have the mega cap names continue to lead to the upside. So to me, I, I actually think the QQQ is very interesting. I think it's a way to really get a diversification between the tech monopolies, which I don't think are really going to be regulated ever. We've been talking about the potential or the fear of regulation for a long time. And to your point about politicians, they just don't seem to have their act together or actually even know how to regulate these companies. And so to me, that seems like an interesting place to be. I'd be interested to hear if there's a price in which you'd ever buy back into Tesla. There is. I definitely would. Again, maybe I come at this from a little bit different of a perspective. Maybe it's frankly not having all the experience that you guys have around guys like an Elon, but I bought a Tesla. Do any of you guys have a Tesla? You're asking the wrong crew. I did, though, out of spite. I bought a Mustang Mach-E, a Ford last year, fully electric. I loved it. It was an amazing car. And I think it's actually compared to, let's say, the lower end Teslas. And I've driven them. I've ridden in them. I think it blows the doors off, personally. My generation, and not that you're much older, but a lot of my generation doesn't know those cars, doesn't know the cool cars of the 50s, 60s, not that that was your era, the 70s, 80s, even the 90s. So you know, I think to a lot of people my age anyway, it's simple, it's straightforward. Who knows about this full self-driving? I mean, I kind of like using it sometimes, frankly. Don't do that. You're too important to society. Don't do that. And Bill, please do me a favor. I'm going to give you my phone number just before you buy back stock. Just call me, please, if you ever listen to me again. If you value my opinion at all, let's have a discussion on that. Let me ask you this. Like an Elon, for example, anybody who can figure out how to land a rocket ship on a barge, I mean, that guy's not a dumb person, right? Can I push back in a second here? So did Elon do that? You know, he's not an engineer, right? And I think there's this hero worship about him doing all these different things. Okay, you just said you're married for five and a half years. You have two kids who are two and four years old. You're a devoted father. You're a devoted husband. You run a business. You run a charity. You're active on Twitter. How much more time do you have? Do you have time to run three companies, experiment on these other things, live tweet your life all day? I think he's full of shit. I honestly think that we're going to see that he is that man behind the curtain that a lot of people have suspected for a very long time. I just don't believe that he is the one who figured out how to send a rocket to outer space and landed on a dime in the middle of the ocean or something like that. John Doerr was in an interview with Kara Swisher on her podcast Sway on New York Times a couple of weeks ago, and he said that Elon Musk has single-handedly advanced the move towards EVs by five years. Now, do you think that's the sort of thing that we should all get down on our knees and revere? Don't you think it was kind of moving along anyway? And I make that point that that guy has been for 50 years, one of the best investors in the world. And he's giving him props. I just think that if he got hit by a bus tomorrow, and I'm not wishing that on him, and didn't exist, I think all the stuff in space, in satellites, in electric vehicles, in Dogecoin, it would all still exist. It would all still be moving forward. Bill, just before you answer, I just want to let you know, he didn't start Tesla. He didn't invent the car, none of that. It was started before him. He came in and took it over. I just want to make that clear. And one other thing, if I told you if Pulte Homes was building a house that generated its own air conditioning, generated its own heat, you know, it was a fully whatever it was. When you sold a house and I bought the features that were supposed to do X, it was such a cool house, so much ingenuity associated with it. I fell in love with kind of the concept and I bought the house, but nothing worked like I thought it was supposed to. And these, all these additional things didn't work like they were supposed to. And I realized there's other homes being built now in the next three to four years, which will have the technology that he's talking about and will be run better. And anyway, 
not to draw a comparison, the point is I'm with Dan that I think he's sold a bill of goods here, but more than that, he's hurting people. You could argue that by him purporting that they have full self-driving capabilities. I don't know if you saw the documentary. Anyway, Dan just sent me down a path. I didn't even know we were going to get into Tesla today. I cut you off. Go ahead. I am definitely not on my knees for Elon Musk. So point number one. Point number two, all you asked me was, would I buy back the stock? Answer was yes, because it's a momentum play. And at some point, maybe it will be interesting. So I just want to be totally clear with that. So before we get out of here, I have a little anecdotal thing. And then I'm curious as to your thoughts. So a few years ago, I was on a plane. I had my ass in a seat. A family comes on the plane. The husband was sitting in one row, the wife and the two kids in another row. So I turned to the husband. I said, listen, if you want to sit next to your wife, I'll move. I'll do whatever you need for me to do in order for you to be with your family. And they were able to do that. I had no idea who the guy was. The next day, I get a call from CNBC and said, somebody wants your contact information. Is it okay? I said, absolutely. It was Doug Yearly. And I know you know who Doug is. So he's obviously the CEO of Toll Brothers. And he was just so thankful. He happened to be watching the show over a course of a few years, which I always found fascinating. But Toll Brothers was created by Robert Toll. I'm sure your grandfather and those guys probably had a lot of really interesting conversations. Did he ever fill you in on some of the things they were talking to their contemporaries about? Because all these companies were built effectively by one person. Well, not only did he tell me those stories, but I was fortunate, especially in the last 10 years or so, to get to know a lot of those people personally. So gotten to know Bob Toll, gotten to know Stuart Miller of Lennar and many of the other peers. I don't know if you know this, but you look at Eli Brode, you look at Lennar Miller, which was Stuart Miller's dad. You look at Don Horton, Bill Pulte, Bob Toll, Dwight Chara. These guys, they were all part of that generation. And Dwight Shar just stepped down as chairman of NVR. I don't know if you saw that last month. So that's kind of a changing of the guard, so to speak, in the home building industry. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens for the next generation. Bill, we've loved having you on. You've been extraordinarily generous with your time. And you're also extraordinarily generous with your wealth and the wealth that you created for yourself. And I think that's important to bring up once again. So thank you so much, Bill Pulte, for joining us on the tape. Let me know when I can get back in the market. All right, Danny and Dan? You got it. Tesla hits double digits. It'll be your sign. But we'll keep in touch for sure. Thanks, Bill. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.